And the subtitle is why the ultimate cause is not the chargeable cause. So I'd recommend both that article and that message to you. You can find the message at gracechurch.org, God and evil, why the ultimate cause is not the chargeable cause. So the message is on gracechurch.org and the article is at Cripplegate. But anyways, we're moving on today and we're coming back to Babel. We have a little bit more to say about that fourth C in our seven C's of history, confusion. Remember, we saw last time from the time information of Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 that this event took place around 2240 BC. And Babel was clearly an instance of man's pride and his desire for self-sufficiency and his own exaltation. Man, at that time, gloried in his ability to accomplish great tasks by working together in unity. But God humbled man. God judged man by dividing him and confusing his language. Now, the things that I'd like to investigate with you regarding Babel today falls under three main questions, and I have them here as the lesson outline for today's class. We want to know, how did the people separate exactly? Which people groups formed? Where'd they go? And how did they relate to the people groups that we know today? Also, what about the cavemen? Were they real? And when did they appear in relation to Babel? Were they on the earth before Babel or afterwards? And then finally, and I alluded to this question a little bit last time, why is it that the people groups today are so different from one another, even in appearance? What accomplished this change? How do we explain it? The title for our, our lesson today is One Race, the Human Race. And we'll see why it's entitled that as we go along. Now let's pray before we continue. Our gracious God, our Father, we thank you for all that you do. We thank you that you are a just God. And even with things like the problem of evil, we ultimately can rest that you are good and everything you do is good. Lord, I pray that as we look into these questions related to Babel today, help me be able to explain it well and help the people to be able to understand it, appreciate it, and apply it. So they are ready in an apologetic sense, but also, God, so that they do not become swept up with the world and its racism and its prejudice, but instead embrace the kind of love that you have for all people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's start with the first question. Does the Bible give us any specific details about the first people groups? Well, actually, it does. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, we're going to look at the entire chapter. It's often called the table of the nations. And that's because the details of this passage works like a chart or a table about the first people groups. It's a long chapter, though. And we're going to examine it section by section. First, we're just going to read verses 1 to 5, make some observations, and then talk a little bit about interpretation. So, Look at Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. Follow along as I read. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, and Rithath, and Togamah. The sons of Javan were Elisha, and Tarshish, Kitin, and Dodanim. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Right, just pause with that for now. Now you notice this passage begins by identifying Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All of the descendants of the earth, after the flood, they come from these men. The focus shifts in verse 2 to one particular son, and that's Japheth. And we're told Japheth has seven particular sons. We also get his grandsons, or for two of Japheth's sons anyways, for Gomer and for Javan. Now, as you heard those names, as you look back through the list, do you recognize any of them? Probably do, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament. And certainly the Hebrews would have recognized many, if not all, of these names, because we see them later on in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. The name Magog, it actually appears in the book of Revelation. 
the final war against Gog, the armies are said to assemble from Gog and Magog, from the four corners of the earth. Madai, this is the this is another important name. This is the Hebrew name for the Medes. Remember Darius the Mede, the Medes and the Persians. When you see that term later on in the Old Testament, it's in Hebrew, Madai. So here it's listed as Madai, translated as Medes later on in our Bibles. Medes had that empire with the Persians. Now, Javan is another important name because it's the Hebrew word or name for the Ionian peoples, that is, the Greeks. So, for example, in the book of Daniel, when you hear about the king of Greece, it's literally the king of Javan. The name Ashkenaz might be familiar to you. Not necessarily because it appears prominently in the Bible, but we have the, the term Ashkenazi Jews today. It, it's uh, used to refer to the area of Central Asia and the Jews that came from there. Tarshish is another name you might recognize. It's where Jonah fled via boat. And it's frequently discussed in the Bible in relation to merchant shipping. So those are just some of the names that might stick out to you. And there's the location information that's also mentioned in this section. To where did these descendants or part of these descendants go? Well, it says they went to the coastlands of the nations, or could be translated in verse five, the coastlands of the Gentiles. Now think about the Israelite situation. What coast or what sea would the Israelites have been most familiar with? The Mediterranean. Mediterranean Sea, Mediterranean coast. And that's important for understanding that, that term there in verse five. Of course, there's also the Sea of Galilee and such, but I'm talking, talking bigger sea. Now the, the, note the last part of verse five. How were the people divided? It says, according to language and according to family. Now let's talk about interpretation for a second. When verse 5 indicates that people divided by language, does that mean that it happened, this division happened before the events of chapter 11? The incident at Babel? Well, no, not necessarily. How are we to understand this description of division by language and family here in chapter 10? Well, I think it's pretty simple. This is a true statement, but it hasn't been explained yet. When we get to chapter 11, we hear, oh, this is why the family's divided. This is why we have different languages. So Moses explains how the people spread out, but then in chapter 11, he goes back to explain how that happened. Now here's another question. Should we see all of Japheth's descendants inhabiting the coastlands or just the sons of Javan? Javan, the Greeks, they certainly were known for going all around the Mediterranean, but were they the only ones? Before we answer that, there's a word of prophecy in Isaiah that is relevant. Uh, this prophecy comes at the, this word comes at the end of the book of Isaiah, and it's referring to distant peoples coming to know God through the witness of scattered Jews. Isaiah 66, 19 says this, Isaiah 66, 19. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Now, if you were listening closely to that verse, you hear some of the same names in the, from the section we just read. But were all of these inhabitants of the coastlands? Or were, was it only Javan and his descendants? And Isaiah is referring to all of them as being inhabitants of the coastlands. So we don't need to restrict that particular description uh, to just Javan. So what's the, what's the big takeaway? What's the big picture? Well, we wanna know where did Japheth's descendants go generally? So from Babel and Babel's south centerish Middle East, in which general direction did the sons of Japheth spread out after Babel? What would you say? Yeah, west, northwest. They're going towards Europe and going towards Asia. 
Very good. Now I say generally. Now let's look at the next son and his descendants. This is a little bit longer section. Look at Genesis 10, verses 6 to 20. Now we're talking about the descendants of Ham. Verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mitzrayim and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Ramah and Sabtaka. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, that is, Yahweh. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth, Ir and Kela, and resin between Nineveh and Kela. That is the great city. Mitzraim became the father of Ludim and Ananim and Lahabim and Naphtahim and Pathrasim and Kaslahim, from which came the Philistines and Kaphtarim. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. And afterward, the families of the Canaanites were spread abroad. The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon, as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. Now let's observe this longer section. We're told of four sons of Ham in verse 6, Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. And we again get the grandsons for some of Ham's sons and even some great-grandsons. Nimrod is one grandson where we get a bit more information. We learn from this text that Nimrod had a kingdom in the land of Shinar. And that kingdom included Babel, and it expanded into Assyria. We also hear that Nimrod was a mighty hunter, so mighty that there was apparently a Hebrew saying or Hebrew idiom commemorating Nimrod. Now note this little aside we get about the Philistines. This aside tells us that the Philistines are not from the line of Canaan, but they are descendants of Caslehim through Mitzrayim. We actually might get that confused sometimes too, but this is clear even here in Genesis 10. Philistines are not Canaanites, though we do hear a lot about Canaan. That's actually the seems to be the focus of this second part of the passage. I get a lot of information about Canaan and his descendants, but notice that the description, the language of it, shifts in verse 16. We start in verse 15 with two names. The first two sons of Canaan, Sidon and Heth. But then it switches to a tribal designation. And then the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, Hivite, Archite, Sinite, Arvidite, Zemurite, and Hamathite. If we combine those two together, we have 11 lines of descent from Canaan. But also in this section on hand, we get a little bit more location information specifically about the territory of Canaan and his descendants. We're told that the territory extended between Sidon in the north, which would be around modern-day Lebanon, to Gaza in the south. Now, Gaza has been in the news a lot over the past decade or so. Where's Gaza? Southwest Israel, southwest Palestine, in between Israel and Egypt, Gaza Strip. So the Canaanite territory goes from Lebanon, from Sidon, down to Gaza. Now, again, looking at the names given in this text, many of them might be familiar to you, as they were to Israel. Certainly, Canaan would have been very familiar to Israel. Canaan and the Canaanites. Why? Because they were Israel's primary enemies. When God gives the Torah to Moses, and Moses gives it to Israel, they are instructed to go in and seize the land of the Canaanites and destroy all of them. So Canaan would certainly be on Israel's mind. The name Mitzrayim is also important. Mitzrayim is actually the name for Egypt in Hebrew. And so when you see the term Egypt in the Old Testament, it's this name, Mitzrayim. 
Cush is also another important name. Cush is the Hebrew name for Ethiopia. So if you see Ethiopia in your Bible translation, it's the same term here translated as Cush. Sidon, we see later on, often associated with the city of Tyre. Both were important trading cities in the area of modern-day Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon. Nineveh, we certainly know about Nineveh, being important for Jonah and the Assyrian Empire. Babel, obviously Babel and Shinar, that's part of the later Babylonian Empire. And we also see Sheba in the list. It may have something to do with the Queen of Sheba, but we're not sure. Now, this section ends like the first. It says the people were divided by language and family into different lands. Now let's interpret a little bit again. In the previous section, we only got descriptions of the descendants of some of Japheth's, Japheth's great-grandsons. But in this section, this section on Ham is not only longer than the previous section on Japheth, but includes extensive detail about a certain descendant of Ham, the Canaanites. Why? Why does this section get more attention? And Canaan especially. What do you think? Yeah, these peoples are more important for the people of Israel to know about. Because they're the ones that the people of Israel are going to be interacting with most directly. And this is really a feature of this whole list. We're getting a lot of descriptions about different peoples and, and descendants, but the ones that are most important for Israel to know about, they get more treatment. And those that are further away, they get less treatment. And that makes sense, because this is supposed to help and situate Israel. Now, let's see if we can answer the same question that we did about Japheth. In general, where did the descendants of Ham move after the rebellion at Babel? Yeah, so they're generally moving south and west towards the coast of the Middle East, towards the Mediterranean, and towards Africa. You see, that's why we would have Egypt and Ethiopia and those, those kingdoms being established by the descendants of Ham. So generally, west and south toward Africa are the descendants of Ham. Now, one more section. We've got one more son of Noah. Let's hear about Shem and his descendants at verses 21 to 32. Let's take a look there. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arpachshad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hul and Gether and Mash. Arpachshad became the father of Shelah. Shelah became the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan became the father of Almadad and Shelah and Hazamach. Hazar Maveth, and Jera, and Hadaram, and Uzal, and Dikla, and Obal, and Abimael, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Now their settlement extended from Misha as you go towards Safar, the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Now let's observe this last section. Shem, we're told, has five sons, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. But once again, Moses is selective about telling us about the grandsons. We hear only about Aram's and Arpachshad's later descendants. But the genealogy is particularly interested in Eber's descendants. It skips out listing Arpachshad's full descendants or Shelah's full descendants and focuses on Eber. Eber is Shem's great-grandson, and Eber himself has two sons, Peleg and Joktan. That's not mentioned here, but in chapter 11, we see that Abram's descent is found through Peleg. So Abram is a descendant of Eber through Peleg. Now, for some reason, we get a lot of information about Joktan and his descendants. Joktan has 13 sons, or 13 great-grandsons for Shem. We're also told where Joktan and his descendants settled. They settled in the area from Misha as you go toward Safar. And this would indicate the southern section of the Arabian Peninsula. Joktan is associated with the Arabian people. Now, like the previous sections, you may recognize some of the names that are mentioned in these verses. Ophir is mentioned in Kings and Chronicles. 
as some kind of trading port used in Solomon's time, famous for its gold. Sheba appears again. Asher appears. This is the Hebrew term for Assyria, and it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament. So we see Asher, it's the same as Assyria. Aram is another important one. From Aram, we get the name Aramean and Aramaic. Your Bible might translate Aram as Syria. Not all Bibles do that. Sometimes they leave it as Aram, but Aram is the same as Syria elsewhere in the Old Testament. And of course, Eber is particularly important because that's where we get the term Hebrew. The verse 32 says that the families from Noah resulted in the separated nations of the earth. And notice when it says it happened after the flood. These, the, these nations were separated after the flood. Now let's interpret this last section, ask a few interpretation questions. How should we understand this phrase after the flood in verse 32? Did the families immediately divide after they left the ark? Well, no, just like we said before, we're getting some information here that's gonna be explained further in the next chapter, in chapter 11. They did divide soon after the flood, but it was only after the events at Babel. Remember that takes place about a hundred years or so after the end of the flood. But we also see again, this repetition of dividing according to language. Again, that, that points to Babel, not simply the flood. But now that big general question, where do the descendants of Shem move after the events of Babel? Of the three different sons, they seem to stay the closest around Babel. The descendants of Shem, they stay around the area of Babel and they move south in the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula in general. Sense of Shem spread around Babel and into the South Middle East. So you could summarize the information, the main information given in this passage. We want to know what were the first people groups and where did they go? The descendants of Japheth generally moved north and west towards Europe and Asia. Sense of, of Ham generally moved west and south toward the Middle East and Africa. And the descendants of Shem generally moved south or spread out around Babel in the Middle East. Let's make this a little bit easier to understand with a big map. All right, some of that might be obscured by my, my face, but you can see the different colors there corresponding to uh, the green is Japheth, the orange is Ham, and the purple is Shem. And you can see how they spread out in general. Now, you can also see that why I say in general, not every single descendant of the sons went in the same direction as the rest. Some of Japheth's descendants appear to have gone east. Some of Ham and Shem's descendants appear to have gone northwest. And while many of the names that are featured in this chapter of Genesis, when combined with the other information we have in the Bible, we can be pretty confident about where they actually ended up. Not all the names can have such precision. In fact, if you compare maps in different study Bibles and such about this chapter, the Table of the Nations, you'll notice that not everybody puts the names in the same place. Names like Gomer, Magag, and Magog and Tarshish, they get put in some different areas. Again, it's, it has to do with the fact that the most important peoples, ones who be closest to Israel, they're the ones who get the most information in the Bible. And so we can be more confident about where they were. But the less important peoples for Israel to know about, it's a little bit harder for us to place them. But still, you can see just from this map and from the information in Genesis chapter 10, that Israel the people of Israel, as they go into the promised land, they would have had a really good idea of where they were in relation to other peoples of the earth. They would understand where their neighbors came from and who their neighbors were because this information had been provided by Moses, provided by God. Now, to be sure, not all of these people groups mentioned here remained in the locations they initially spread out. Some of them continue to migrate or portions of them continue to migrate. Some were exterminated through war or enslaved. Some were dispersed, forcibly taken into new lands. These things were not, these uh, descendants and their migrations, they were not static. And Israel's own experience featured all of these types of experiences, all of these, these changes. And certainly other nations did too. Nevertheless, we do see from this how all the nations began to spread out 
after Babel. And it was this was the beginning of the migrations that ultimately brought people to as far-flung places as Japan, Australia, North America, and South America. It was just this process of the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth spreading out across the world. Now, speaking of the spreading out, let's now talk about cavemen. Did cavemen really exist, and when did they? As the people were spreading out from Babel, they were moving into lands that no other people, in, in which no other people lived. Now think about the challenges they would have faced as they did that. They would need to find food, they would need to find shelter, place to sleep, and they would need defense against animals and other migrating tribes. To handle these challenges, the people would need supplies, but where would they have gotten their supplies? They either had to already have it and bring it with them, or they had to make it from the land. But remember, these are uninhabited lands. There would not have been any markets to buy food or supplies from, no inns to stop at. All these families had as they spread out across the world was what they carried with them, what their animals carried, if they had any animals, and what they could easily make or take from the land. Moreover, Let's remember that each family did not have the skills that were once part of the larger community at Babel. For example, we hear in the early chapters of Genesis that some people were already working skillfully with metals before the flood and before Babel. Metalworking was something discovered and used. And metalworking was probably part of the community at Babel. There were metal workers who were providing that service to the other peoples and families at Babel. But when the families divide, that means the people's skills are split. Their specializations are split. So knowledge and skill in metalworking, for instance, was no longer part of each family, no longer part of each community. Each family group then had to, when it came to metalworking, they had to make do with what metal tools they already had. Or if they didn't have any, they had to find new tools. They had to make tools from other materials. And what kind of tools would they have made? Well, before we answer that, let's, let's transport ourselves into this situation. Consider how we would fare if we were suddenly forced into the wilderness today. And I mean the true wilderness, not like a park or something like that. We are highly sophisticated Americans, 21st century, but you throw us into the wild with only what we can carry, and suddenly we're gonna look pretty primitive, won't we? I mean, we might even look a little pathetic. There are no microwaves that we can use in the wilderness, no water coolers, no hardware stores, supermarkets, all the things that we're used to for providing our needs. It's truly back to basics. If we're going to survive, we've got to forage, we've got to hunt, and we've got to make everything ourselves. So let's say we need to break something open, but we don't have any tools with us for doing that. So what would we use? Yeah, a rock or a sturdy stick. That's all we have access to. Or we're going to need shelter. I don't know about you, I'm not very good at building shelters. I don't have tools for that. I don't have knowledge of how to build shelters. So if you or I are in the, in the wilderness, what kind of shelter would be ideal if we were to happen upon it in the wild? Maybe a cave. A cave is sturdy. It's a good respite from the sun or rain. You don't have to really modify it very much. It's already built. Hewn out. It's mildly defensible. There's only one entrance usually, and so you can defend yourself. True, a cave is not transportable. That's a disadvantage, but it would make a good home base while we make tents or some other kind of housing. Now, if you or I lived in a cave and used stone tools because we're suddenly in a desperate situation, does that mean that we've become stupid or barbaric? No, of course not. If you take us out of the wilderness and put us back in civilization, we will 
go right back to being sophisticated. We'll show ourselves to be culturally savvy, technologically advanced, but in the wilderness, you don't see that. We look largely culturally and intellectually lacking. Now, what am I getting at? I'm trying to expose the faulty stereotypes of people in the past who used stone tools and lived in caves. Scientists and historians sometimes just talk about a stone age in which people were without culture and were relatively unintelligent. These people, they couldn't even make metal tools. They lived in caves. They painted the most basic of paintings. What a bunch of Neanderthals. But really, when we understand the true history of the earth recorded in the Bible, we can see that there's a much more sensible explanation. These so-called Stone Age peoples, they were not unintelligent. They were not uncultured at all. They were simply spreading out after the confusion of Babel and making use of what was available. As the numbers within these people groups grew, and as they found suitable locations to permanently settle, and as they perfected skills that they needed to learn or relearn, many of these groups reestablished cities, trade, and cultural pursuits, what we call today civilization. It was really with them the whole time. They just didn't have a way to manifest it. So yes, cavemen were real, but they were not the ignorant brutes that they're often thought of today. The Bible shows us the right way to understand cavemen and cave women. There's a very reasonable explanation. They were just the people who were spreading out in the days after Babel. But now we come to the third and the biggest question of our class today. We've seen how the people groups spread out. We've seen how the process of spreading out caused these people groups to temporarily adopt more primitive lifestyles. But how is it though that the people became so different, but so different from one another, especially or even in appearance? As you know, man and his sinfulness, he has long used differences in appearance as a channel for his hatred and distrust of his fellow man. It's not that there's anything intrinsically wrong or right about having a certain eye shape or nose shape or skin color. But these physical features, they make tangible, they make concrete, more abstract issues, differences in culture, differences in religion, differences in ethnicity. And also, if a person suffers hurts and oppression at the hands of another culture, he can channel his hatred for that group in the way he looks at their appearance. Mere appearance becomes an excuse for man to show hatred and to show mistreatment. We choose to hate those who are different from us, even because of their different appearance. There was a time, and some of you know this, there was a time when man sought to scientifically erect a hierarchy of races based on evolutionary theory. Certain ethnicities were said to be superior to or more highly evolved than other ethnicities. And this superiority was supposedly even evident in physical appearance. In this system, which was created by white Europeans, who do you think was at the top? White Europeans. And who was at the bottom? Black Africans. Such thinking was prevalent even in the beginning of the 20th century, supposedly an advanced era. This is where people have had all this education, all this technological advance, and yet this is how they thought. And the most obvious example is Nazi Germany, of course. Nazi Germany under Hitler, they saw blonde-haired, blue-eyed Germans to be the master race. And Jews and Slavs were so inferior as to be worthy only of extermination. Now, perhaps we think we're all past that now, that the world has learned its lesson when it comes to these things, but of course it has not. Our news, more than ever, is full of racial conflict. Black versus white, native versus immigrant, European versus Middle Eastern, Chinese versus Japanese, any people group, there's some sort of race problem. 
And much of this, again, it's simply based off of what appear to be innate differences between the races, even in appearance. What does the Bible have to say about all of this? You remember the title of today's lesson. The Bible is actually clear that we're all just one race. There aren't different races. We often talk that way, but that's not really the case. Genesis 3.20, and we've looked at that verse already. Genesis 3.20 says that Eve was the mother of all living. Every human that ever came to be came from Eve. That's why her name is Eve. Of course, apart from Adam. In Acts 17.26, this is Paul speaking at the Areopagus to the Athenians. Paul says that from one, God made every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Every ethnos, every people group, it was all from one, one blood, one man. And even though we look a little different from each other on the outside, and even though we are raised part of different cultures, we are all one race. There's no intrinsic superiority or inferiority between any people group. In fact, what appears to be drastic differences in appearance can be explained by two very simple processes that have been working since Babel, and actually because of Babel. And what are those two processes? Genetic variation and natural selection. Now, when I say natural selection, some of you might be like, wait a second, red flags going up. Isn't natural selection evolution? Well, the terms are often used interchangeably by evolutionists. They'll say natural, or natural selection is evolution but the, the terms are actually not the same. They're distinct. Natural selection, also called adaptation or microevolution or survival of the fittest, is defined in this way by one article from Answers in Genesis. Natural selection is the process by which individuals possessing a set of traits that confer a survival advantage in a given environment tend to leave more offspring on average that survive to reproduce in the next generation. Now, I don't know if that definition is abundantly clear to you, but it will be made more clear through an example. Let's say, well, let's talk about dogs. I like dogs. Let's say you have two dogs, male and female. One has long hair and one has short hair. They run away from their owners into the wilds of Alaska during the summer, and they start having puppies. First generation of puppies ends up containing a mixture of long-haired dogs and short-haired dogs. However, the harsh Alaska winter comes and the short-haired dogs just can't stay warm enough. And so they all die, sorry to say. So who's left to populate after the winter? Only the long-haired dogs, they're the only ones who survive. And some of these long-haired dogs still contain within them the genetic information for producing short-haired dogs. And so when the new dogs have puppies the next year, most of the puppies are long-haired but there are a few short-haired dogs that are also born. But what's gonna to happen to those short-haired puppies in the next winter if the environment stays consistent? They're gonna die. They won't be able to survive. They don't have the hair for it. So after a few generations, the dog couples in this particular area of Alaska, they no longer produce any short-haired dogs. Why? It's because the genetic information for producing short-haired dogs has been lost. All of the creatures who had it died or did not pass it on. This is what I mean by natural selection. Natural selection is an observable process in which genetic information is lost by less successful variants of an animal kind in a given environment. Short-haired dogs, they weren't good for that environment. So their genetic information for short hair was lost. That's natural selection. Now, both creationists and evolutionists agree that natural selection has played a role in the development of creature populations around the world. It's why we see what's called speciation. It's why we see the variance in an animal kind. It's why the woolly mammoths died out in North America and Siberia, but other variants of the elephant kind in Africa and Asia, they did quite well and continued to survive. The key difference, though, between evolutionists and creationists when it comes to natural selection is that evolutionists say that natural 
selection, along with mutation and other factors, can over time not just produce variants of a kind, but change a creature into another kind. Natural selection and mutation, say, can turn a fish's descendants one day into a dog. That's the difference. This macroevolution is not observed today, nor is it genetically possible, because natural selection, as we've seen even from our little example about dogs, it results in a loss of information, a loss of genetic information. It does not provide new information, which is what you need to produce a new kind. Now, what does all this have to do with humans? Well, I'll get to that, but let me go back and talk about the other process that's important, genetic variation. Genes can also be lost, not just from natural selection, but also due to simple genetic variation. And to see this, let's talk about dogs again. And again, this is a simplified example. Genetic inheritance is a little bit more complex than what I'm saying here, but I think this will help you get the idea. Suppose you have two dogs with medium length hair. Each dog has one allele, an allele is just a word for a type of gene. Each dog has one allele for long hair, which we'll call L, and one allele for short hair, which we'll call S. They inherited these two alleles from their dog parents. Each dog is LS, and that combination manifests in medium length hair. Now these dogs have puppies, and some puppies are SS, which yields short hair, some are LS, which yields medium hair, and some are LL, yielding long hair. Now suppose that two long-haired dogs who only have LL, they move away from the rest of the dog population. What kind of puppies will these LL dogs produce? Only long-haired dogs. Why? Because that's the only genetic information available. Only information for long hair is present in their gene pool, in the collection of genes in their location. These dogs have separated from the rest of the dog population and therefore lost access to certain gene variants for other types of hair. So these long haired dogs have become distinct from many of the other dogs because now they can only produce long hair. Now let's bring this all back to humanity. The physical differences between the people groups that we see today, they can be accounted for with these two processes I've just described, simple genetic variation and perhaps a small amount of natural selection. As the, or while the people in the original Babel population after the flood, they enjoyed a diverse gene pool. They had many, different genetic variations in one place. So people, as they got married and as they had children, there was a lot of variation. These families suddenly separated from one another because of the confusion of languages at Babel, which means that these families isolated and greatly reduced the gene pool, the collection of genes that they had in each new community. And humans can only reproduce with the genetic information that they already have. So like the long-haired dogs that suddenly separated from the greater dog population, each group of humans became very quickly physically distinct from the other groups. Let's take skin color as an example. First of all, the only thing that separates my skin color from the skin color of Khalif is the presence of a certain chemical in our skin, melanin, or more specifically, eumelanin. All of us have melanin in different amounts. It's something that our bodies make. And no one is truly black or white. We're all on a spectrum of brown. If you, a lot of, if you have a lot of eumelanin in your skin, you will be very dark brown, which is what we call black. But if you have a little eumelanin in your skin, then you'll be very light brown, which is what we call white. Now you can increase the amount of eumelanin in your skin by doing a certain activity. What's that? going out into the sun, tanning. That's a one way to increase it, though some people burn rather than tan. But you have natural levels of eumelanin and eumelanin producing ability, and that is simply based on your genetics. It's inherited. 
from your parents. So if two people with dark skin marry, what skin color will little children tend to have? Dark. If two people with light skin marry, what skin color will their children tend to have? Light. And what if someone with dark skin marries someone with light skin? What skin color will their children tend to have? It will be a mixture, usually. They will produce children that are brown, or they might produce children who are light-skinned or dark-skinned. Now imagine the skin colors for the various couples that were there at Babel in the different families. You had some couples that were probably only light-skinned, and some couples that were only dark-skinned, and some that were a mixture of skin colors. Because these families separated after Babel, they took with them the limited genetic information that they had, even for skin color. So if a light-skinned family or light-skinned couple separated, that means they could only produce light-skinned babies. And when those babies grew up, the only people in their communities that they could marry were also light-skinned. Therefore, the next generation in that community would also be light-skinned. And the next generation, also light-skinned. And the next generation, also light-skinned. In this way, a whole region, a whole large collection of people came to possess the very same similar skin tone, very same or similar skin tone in a relatively short amount of time. It's just because we had genetic variation that became isolated. The same process happened with many other physical characteristics. And there is, it's the reason why you and I can point to certain physical features like eye shape or eye color or facial structure and say, oh, he looks German or, oh, she looks Japanese. It's because certain genetic variations for eye shape or eye color, or facial structure, they became isolated in these people groups as the community separated from one another. That largely explains the differences that we have today, though it's possible that natural selection did play a small role. It's possible that some emerging characteristics in each community helped certain people survive longer, have more children, or achieve greater status. These physical traits then became naturally selected over time. And to, to see how this might have played out, let's take skin color again as an example. It's currently thought that dark skin is beneficial for environments with lots of sunlight, like in locations near the equator. The reason for this is more eumelanin in the skin means the body tends to experience less negative effects from ultraviolet rays. Therefore, light-skinned descendants who settled in Africa may have had slightly more trouble with skin cancer and other sun-related issues and therefore survived less and had less children than those with dark skin. Contrarily, it's also thought that light skin is beneficial for environments that have little sunlight, since light-skinned light -skinned individuals can produce more vitamin D with less sun exposure. Therefore, dark-skinned descendants and Northern Europe or Asia, they may have suffered from vitamin D deficiency or more easily suffered, which could have led to rickets and other problems. And therefore, dark-skinned settlers might have survived less long and had fewer children than lighter-skinned people in those areas. So natural selection may have played an influence as to where certain skin colors came to dominate. But I speak tentatively about that because humans are pretty clever God made humans pretty intelligent, and there are ways around these issues if people just tried hard enough. Light-skinned inhabitants in an area with a lot of sun, they simply could have covered themselves more. For dark-skinned inhabitants in northern climes, they could have gotten their vitamin D from other sources other than the sun, like from the animals that they hunted and ate. But still, I hope you can see that these two simple processes, and these are processes that we observe today, they can account for what look like drastic differences, at least physically, between the people groups. If we examine this on a genetic level, I think many of you know this, the differences between people groups are actually very, very slight. And they were simply the result of the families separating from one another, spreading out across the earth after Babel. Now, evolutionary biologists claim that there was simply not enough time 
for all of the human diversity we see today to result from four couples starting around 4,000 years ago at Babel. But that's not the case. And the only reason they say that is because they base their calculations on evolutionary assumptions. So inferred rates of birth, rates of mutation, rates of separation, it's all based on an evolutionary model. So they say, this couldn't have happened because our evolutionary model says it, it couldn't have happened. Or in other words, to prove their evolutionary view, they create a timeline that must assume evolution to be true. But that's vicious circular reasoning. There was indeed enough time for today's diversity to be produced from the families that were there at Babel and just through natural selection and genetic variation. But of course, these things were dynamic, like language and culture. Physical characteristics continued to morph as people continued to mix with and separate from one another. Certain features became more valued or devalued by society, or certain traits made one more successful or less successful. So these things were constantly changing, even as they are today. But what's the main point? We are indeed all one race. And in Christ, we've been given the wonderful duty through the gospel to love and win every people group, every tribe, every tongue, every nation to Christ. No person has greater or less value based on what people group they come from, because all are made in the image of God. And that's what gives them their value. That's what gives you your value. And you know that God is no respecter of persons based on appearance. He says to Samuel, when Samuel's looking for the next king of Israel, and you remember this probably, 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not look at his appearance. He's talking about the, the sons of Jesse that God rejected. Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. Not only this, but because we are all one race, because we're all human, we all have the same desperate need as our first parents, and that's the need for salvation, the need for deliverance from death. And in addressing this need, it delighted our Lord Jesus Christ to totally pierce through all racial prejudices and boundaries. And we can see this not only in the New Testament's universal gospel scope, but also in Jesus's own ministry. Because besides the Jews, to what other two people groups, hated people groups, did Jesus minister? Samaritans and Gentiles. You remember Jesus' conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. She says to him, how can you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan? The Jews despised the Samaritans. They were half-breeds, idolaters. Certain Jews even called Jesus a Samaritan at one point just to show him contempt. And the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. They responded in kind. There's a one time where Jesus was trying to get to Jerusalem. He wanted to pass through a Samaritan town, and they wouldn't let him. James and John, they said, he wants to call down fire from heaven on these wicked Samaritans. And Jesus rebuked them. That wasn't Jesus' goal. His goal was to preach the good news of the gospel. And this he did with the Samaritan woman and with those who were there at her town. And many of those people, the whole town, it says, believed. And they became part of God's people. But Jesus didn't just minister to the Samaritans. He also ministered to Gentiles. One of them was that Roman centurion. Remember him who had such great faith in contrast to the lack of faith in Israel? He was a Roman. They were considered to be thoroughly unclean. They were oppressors to the Jewish people. They represented the government that the Jews hated. Jews saw Gentiles as unclean dogs. They didn't even want to go in their house. Jesus was ready to go to their house. He was actually going to do that to heal this man's um, servant. But it was only the man's humble faith that presented, prevented Jesus from doing so. The centurion sent to Jesus and said, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and I know that my servant will be healed. But it wasn't just Jesus. The same race-penetrating work, ethnicity-disregarding work was carried on by the apostolic church. Philip 
had a great ministry among the Samaritans. Peter and Paul gladly brought the message to the Gentiles, though they were Jews, gladly ministered to the Gentiles. Paul became the apostle of the Gentiles. Even though they weren't part of the same people group, in a sense they were, because we're all human. We might sometimes think that life would be so much easier if we were all the same, if we were all the same people group. We all have the same ethnicity, same appearance, same culture, same language. But God delights to show his glory by breaking through all the barriers that man clings to in his sinfulness. All the barriers that man sets up between himself and his fellow man. Things like language, things like culture, things like social class, things like gender. Jesus directs all to come to him and behold his glory. And this is something we ourselves have experienced, is it not? God reached down, he rescued you and me, and most of us are not Jewish or even from the Middle East. Why should we have received God's attention? Why should we have experienced God's mercy? But he delighted to do that. And he delights to do that to all people, all people groups. Pleased him to show himself kind by reaching down and drawing those who are far off and bringing them near even us. If that's what Jesus did, if that's what he delighted to do, if that's the heart of God, then shouldn't we delight to do the same? God found it so enjoyable to show his goodness, to show his mercy to the people groups that are most hated and distrusted by men. Shouldn't we? Will we forgo the joy of showing everyone God Or will we secretly harbor prejudices against people, certain people groups, supposing that some are worthy of God's love and others are not? Will we sinfully hold a grudge against an entire people group for what certain people of that people group have done to us? Will we foolishly believe that some people groups are just better than others? Well, the fact of the matter is, we are all inheritors of common grace and original sin, just manifested differently. I mean, think about our own culture, our own ethnicity, American. Are Americans superior to all other cultures and ethnicities in the world? Of course not. There may be certain good things about being an American, certain values in our culture that are laudable. There are a lot that are not, but we are inheritors of common grace and a very common depravity, just manifested a little differently in our culture than it is in other cultures. No people are worthy of salvation, but all are made in God's image and all are in desperate need. We have a common situation. We are one blood, one people, one race. Even Christ became a human to save humans and show God or to show God's glory. And so let us do the same. Let us love and give the gospel to our entire race, the human race. Let's have no room for partiality, which James talks about, based on ethnicity or culture. Well, that's pretty much all the time we have today. It's a lot of information. I know if you have questions about what you've heard today, questions about this topic, please email me. That's all for this week. Next week, we proceed on in the chronology of the Bible, but we're actually leaving the book of Genesis for a brief time. We're actually going to go over to the book of Job because it seems that Job is the next account that appears chronologically. We're going to talk about Job and his suffering and what God was teaching us through the book of Job. So hope you'll be back. It's going to be a great time. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we confess the times that we have been evil in our prejudice against our fellow man fellow image bearers, God, we have no right ever, God, to discriminate based on appearance, based on people group, for we are all made in your image. You have given dignity to all people. It is not innate to them, but it comes from you. That's why, God, you said it is, it is evil for us to even speak badly about another person, much less mistreat them. 
But Lord, you are, you are one who forgives sin. Lord, thank you that you have forgiven us all our sins, including, including this, for those that know you. But Lord God, we don't want to live that way anymore. We want to love all people just as you do. Show kindness and grace to all people just as it was shown to us. So God, I pray that your love would fill our hearts in such a way that we do that, that we delight particularly to show love to those who are most hated, most distrusted, most ignored in our society and in our world. Lord God, I pray that we would have mercy on others just as you've had mercy on us. We would love to imitate you in this way. I know, God, it's only possible by your spirit. We need your spirit. Please work in us. And Lord, I pray that you would show yourself to be great as we show your love to other people. In Jesus' name, amen.